dollar day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man's view of the changing world The changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life Times get tough Or even if they don't Coming to you today from Arlington, Texas uh, today is episode 371. It is February the 4th, 2010. And we are going to talk today about underrated Tito Walkany skills or the end of the world as we know it skills. Now, note I said underrated skills. And what I mean by that is we're not going to talk about how to shoot, how to reload, um, how to fish, trap. Uh, things like that. I think those are skills that everybody talks about when we talk about the end of the world as we know it. What we're going to talk about today are the things that I think people gloss over because maybe a lot of them are even what you would call more of a, a peacetime skill uh, is, is a way to look at it. But we'll get more into that in a minute. I think we'll have an interesting way of viewing things today by the end of today's show about even the biggest disasters, the biggest potential. I mean, national in scope, major stuff, the stuff that uh, Hollywood movies are written about. We'll be talking about that in just a bit. Before we do that, though, let's knock out our housekeeping. Uh, First up, let's take care of our sponsors, guys. Uh, they do a lot to try to take care of you guys uh, by making sure they support the show and making sure it's here for you every day. Sponsor of the day number one, MERS-Radio.com. Uh, check out MERS Radio for what it can do for you by combining security and additional communication skills. I love my MERS gear, and I love dealing with MERSradio.com because they really do a good job of taking care of me. Remember also, it really makes a lot of sense to go to the survivalpodcast.com first before linking off to any of the sponsors' websites. That way you know you're dealing with our actual sponsors. MERS Radio is, you know, their web address is www.murs-radio.com. It gets harder and harder to think of new uh, domain names. So, you know, if you went to MERSradio.com without the hyphen, you wouldn't be with our sponsor. So go buy the Survival Podcast first. Next up is the Berkey Guy, located at directive21.com. Folks, water is life. And with Berkey Light water filters, you can always have good, clean water available to you. And it's going to be necessary to have a way to purify water in the future, um, not just in, a, in, a, in, a, in an end-of-the-world scenario, but I think water is going to become a much more valuable commodity over time, especially in certain parts of the world. And being able to take dirty water and make it clean is going to be highly important. All right, with that, let's uh, move on from here. I want to remind you today to join our forum, get involved with our forum, be part of our forum, be part of our community. I don't know how else to put it. I think there's a tremendous education and a tremendous support system waiting for anyone that will join the Survival Podcast Forum. Um, I also have a special announcement today. Uh, I don't have an online place for you guys to register for this or anything yet, but I will put a link to uh, the AG Trading Center up at Farmer's Branch. But on the uh, 17th of February, which is a Wednesday, about two weeks from now, uh, I will be doing a 90-minute a, a workshop on my modern survival planning, going over my philosophy. I'll be doing that live at the AG Trading Center, uh, again, in Farmer's Branch. I'll put a link to that location. Hopefully, Rob Gray will get back to me with uh, any type of additional information they have on the event published online, so I can put that up for you. But I'd love to see some of you guys out there. Uh, it's not going to be a totally free event. I believe Rob's charging 10 
uh, units in, uh, in in their their silver currency because the AG Trading Center is uh, is all about changing the way we do business and starting to do business with local merchants and trading silver anonymously. Um, they'll probably take cash too. I'm not exactly sure how he's working that out, but uh, if you if you have uh, if you really want more information on it, please just get with me. Send me an email at jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com, and I'll put you on a little distribution list until the 17th. And anything new I find out. I will uh, send an update to those people. All right. Moving on from there, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Uh, if you do that, you'll support the show at 20 cents an episode. So if every time you listen to the show you think, hey, Apple's worth two dimes, consider joining the Support Brigade. You'll get a bunch of extra stuff. I'll leave it at that today. Um, let's get into the topic today. Let's, let's discuss this, and let's kind of let me give you why I came up with you know, kind of an end-of-the-world show. Um, it's not about the end of the world for me. It's about after the end of the world. When we say the end of the world in, in the survivalist community, we don't mean that, you know, Martin Martian, from, if you guys are old enough to remember his cartoon character on Bugs Bunny's show, is going to blow up the Earth with an Imodium P-32 explosive space modulator. Gee, what brain cell did I have that little tidbit in? But that's not what we're talking about where everybody's gone. What we're talking about is if I took you and put you in a, in a quiet room where all your needs were met for a week, and whenever this event was occurred, when I let you out of that room, you would not recognize the planet anymore. Even if nature-wise, things, you know, trees are still here and whatever, but whatever event it was, whether it was a pandemic flu, whether it was some type of a solar flare event, whether it was war, whether it's an economic collapse, society and the rules in society completely break down at a level at which governments and even individual citizens can no longer control the situation. And when we look at something like an economic collapse of the United States, a true economic complete breakdown, we get it to a point where it destroys a, a large portion of our infrastructure. If we look at something like a great big solar flare hitting us and shorting out the electrical grid or a terrorist attack on the electrical grid um, or a, some kind of just weird major weather event that has some kind of catastrophic uh, event or um, we end up in a limited nuclear war and something uh, along the lines of an EMP attack of some sort that shuts out our electrical grid. Um, there's just so many things that could do it overnight. And then there's also what I think is more likely if we ever get into this, you know, almost back to an agrarian society is a slow spiraling down. Uh, peak oil becomes not just evident, but imminent and onerous. And we get to a point where we just can't keep it up and the whole machine starts to wind down. And all of these things that we've become accustomed to in modern life cease to exist. Any of those scenarios. Now, I'm, I'm a realist, so I'll tell you that if that happens, what we'll be looking at will be a disaster beyond words and scope initially. Death, disease, destruction, lawlessness, that's what would happen. It would not be a good thing. But I'm also an optimist because I've studied history, and I've seen the results of complete wiped-out societies. And what that always ends up being is a rebuilding of society. 
And what you end up with is a group of people who lose 50% or more to death and illness of the people that they've relied on. If you think about it, in a society, and I don't want to devalue anybody here, but as far as getting things done, the people that do that are generally between about 25 and 65. Kids are the future, and the elderly, hopefully, are providing us wisdom and guidance. But there's not a whole lot, and, and there are some, and God bless the ones that are, there's not a whole lot of 85-year-old ladies in a machine shop, or designing a building, or engineering an electrical system, or digging a garden. There's some, but not a lot. So we have to accept the fact that when it comes, and this is not a eugenics concept, this is just reality that we would have to deal with, right? Because eugenics is when we get rid of the, 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 the useless. So I don't want anybody to think we're going down that path, but we are going to acknowledge a reality that there's only about a third of the population, just by age alone, that actively gets things done. In our current society, I think in, a, in an end-of-the-world society, that would change dramatically. The, 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 the elderly would be welcomed back in. A lot of them, we have to understand, have been pushed out. And a lot of children would have to be brought into being an active component of society earlier. But right now, that's what we're relying, relying on. We also have to accept the fact that about 10 to 20% of the American population... And this is probably a similar number around much of what they call the civilized world, is a non-producer, even in those age brackets. And it varies in levels of how, you know, how much of a non-producer they are. There's a, 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 it's probably 30%, maybe more. I don't have a hard figure for you, but what I mean by non-producer is they have a job where they don't do anything that would really matter if we took the apparatus apart. I'm sorry, but if what you do is sit around and stamp forms every time new stuff comes into a warehouse, and that's all you do, if that warehouse isn't running, you're not producing anything for society. Understand what I'm saying when I say non-producers then? And I am talking about the extreme non-producers, the people on welfare, food stamps, and all that good jazz. And not, and, and let's, again, this is not negative. Because some of those people, I can be very negative about. Get off your ass and get a job. We all feel that way about them. There's a lot of people that are disabled, injured, don't have the capability to contribute at a production level, a get-things-done level. Right? Some of them work really hard through disabilities and make you really dislike the people that just lay there because they can. All I'm saying is we have to look at a fact that we have a third of society by age that gets things done, and out of that third, we take a third out of it and we only have two-thirds of that third left that are really the people that get things done. Okay? Because we take the politicians out, of course. So what that means is if you get into a situation where you lose a large portion of society, and if you lose the portion of society that's out in the world working because they're the ones that are most at risk during a cataclysm, you end up with a shortage of people that know how to get things done. And at the end of that major disaster, you have to enter a phase of rebuilding. And that's where my optimism comes in. And what I'm telling you is every society, no matter how 
far it's broke down, no matter how much it was burned to the ground, whether it was done by a volcano or an invading army or a disease like the Black Death, the bubonic plague, no matter where it's occurred, when the little ice age ravaged northern Europe, no matter where it's occurred, society rebuilds. This is what we do as humans. So these skills are more about getting through the initial acute stage a little bit, but more about, okay, now we have to deal with the fact that we've lost people. We have to start banding together, and the lone wolves have to start realizing that even that big closet full of food is going to wear out someday. And we have to start putting society back together. And to be truly valued in society, you have to bring something with you. Now, how likely do I think it is that you'll ever have to deal with this? Uh, the answer is, I have no idea. I have no idea. I could say it's highly unlikely, but I believe our economy will destroy itself sooner or later. I believe that will happen. It's a matter of how long and what we do in response to it, whether or not it's going to result in something like we're talking about. But it will happen. I believe that peak oil must occur. All right? I don't care how much oil is left. When you have 2 billion people, we have 300 million in this country, folks, 2 billion, 2.6 billion people that want to live our lifestyle in developing nations of China and India, and they start sucking as much oil as we do, not even as much as they need to pull it off, just as much as we do right now, it's game over on the peak part of it anyway. But what's the decline look like? I don't know. And how long and how much new stuff can we find? And how, how quickly will we develop uh, other technologies like solar, wind, nuclear, tidal? I don't know. I know that if we don't get it right, the eventual thing is a breakdown. Because what happens when 25 million Americans wake up in the morning and flip a light switch and nothing goes, nothing happens? Well, you listen to my dad back in the 70s, he used to say 50% of them will lay down and die. About 20% of them don't know what to do. The other 30% will freak the hell out. You better watch out for them, because they're the dangerous ones. Well, 30% of 25 million is a lot of people are freaking out and dangerous. And then that compounds the problem that we already have. What's the likelihood that sooner or later a giant solar flare from the, the sun will hit the earth really hard? It's almost a thousand percent, you know, it's going to happen. It could be a hundred million years before it does. I don't know. But my point is that we teach you on this show to take actions that help you live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't, and everything that I'm going to talk about doing today will help your independence and your quest for self-sufficiency even if we never deal with it. But if we do deal with it, Having two or three of them that you're competent at, and maybe one that you're a master at, would make you a valuable part of the society that's rebuilding. So, let's start going through them. Well, the first skill might shock you a little bit. And there's people out there that I guess you would really call an electrical engineer. They have a degree in engineering, and uh, they know all kinds of good things. And if that's you, then great. I think you already have the skill you need. But it's electrical engineering, but it's not necessarily being a, you know, having a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and an EE credential that I'm talking about. I'm talking about knowing how electricity works and knowing how to read and 
draw up a wiring diagram. I think more importantly than being the electrical engineer that could design the power distribution system for a multi-story office building would be having enough engineering and electrical knowledge to look at a pile of rubble in a junkyard and be able to pull some solar panels off a couple street signs and wire anything up that produces any electricity at all. If we go into a societal decay that results in this type of extreme environment, we are going to have a massive amount of stuff that's laying around that could just be harvested. But just like yesterday's show on situational awareness, unless you have the understanding of the material and the forethought of what to do with it, you have a bunch of junk, but with some, some level of electrical operation knowledge and some engineering knowledge and electronics knowledge, you can then take what is a pile of junk and create many power stations with it. Now look, I'm going to tell you flat out, in a rebuilding society that no longer has the luxury of the electrical grid, no, matter, no longer has the luxury of just going to the gas pump and complaining about how expensive the gasoline is, the person that can create power systems, be they solar, wind, micro-hydro, it doesn't matter. That person would be highly valued in a society. Far more so than they are today. In fact, the guy that would be most valued is the little hippie guy that can go out in the middle of the desert and set up an off-grid place and do it for like 5K or less today. Because if you just said to him, hey, you know what? There's a whole bunch of stuff laying all over the place, and a lot of it's just up for grabs, and we can just bring it to you in a pile. He can do it for nothing. But I think if we can start taking people that have, if you have that profession, electronics is your profession, learning how to build alternative electrical systems with that background would make you even more suited to do a lot of these things. And when I say electrical, I'm talking about energy utilization not just solar, wind, and things like that. But if you understand energy, then you're also pretty well equipped, even though there's no electrical parts, to create things like solar-powered hot water heating. It just creates heat. There, there, there is no person with a fundamental understanding of electricity that does not have a fundamental understanding of heat and energy. And things like what can be used to create things like safe and efficient wood-burning equipment. All of that kind of falls under this umbrella. And that doesn't mean that one person would have all of that range of skill. What I'm saying to you is you can learn any, any portion of that. And it begins to fill out what I would call your portfolio of self-reliance skills. Because let's now conversely look at this, electrical engineering skills and energy manipulation skills today, even if nothing goes wrong, and your quest for self-reliance. Can you see how that would help you? Obviously, it's, it's, it's pretty common uh, for people to seek those skills today. Here's what I think that will really blow you away that I have included in this today. Computer programming and networking. Note I did not say website design or graphic design. And it's a little further down the line as creativity starts to be valued in the society again. But I also want you to think about this. If you can come up with any level of electricity and power, and you have a society that now has a population reduction that's occurred to it, 
and you need to get more accomplished with less. The best way we know how to do that today is with computers. And if I take a good electrical engineer and a good computer programmer that understands computer networking, and I give them enough rubbish, they can create a small-scale farm that's largely or maybe even almost wholly automated and reduce the volume of human labor. And in the middle of this major crisis, right, computers will be considered worthless initially. Throw them out windows. Plenty of scrap to harvest. And to do these types of things, we don't need the supercomputers of today. You know, the 8 gig of RAM, core dual processors, old Windows 95 crap boxes could do a lot of this stuff. Those were far more powerful than the computers that were on board the first spacecrafts. So I'm talking about things like automating things like irrigation cycles, using computers as controllers for the, the, the you know, rigged up solar systems to keep them moving in time with the sun itself. Right? Now, again, I think it's pretty easy. I don't even have to point out how those skills are valuable today for self-sufficiency and self-reliance. You know, I've seen people with greenhouses that have systems set up in there to help control temperature, irrigation cycles, venting, shading, and what's sitting out there is some old computer somebody threw away, running some cheap software that the guy hacked together himself. See, that type of skill set in a society that's trying to rebuild itself I think it would be massively valuable. But that type of skill set today for the homesteader, massively valuable. Does that mean you should run out and start learning computer programming? No, not if it's not your thing. I've learned something about programming and writing code. I'm smart enough to do it, and I hate it, so I shouldn't. I, I've taught myself some basic PHP, some basic C++. I can do some things. I can look at the books, and I can start to go, yeah, in a, in, in a year I could be a really good programmer, and it would be a complete waste of who I really am. That's not for me. But there's people that see music in the code. That's you. You should try to take that skill set and bend it outside of societal's norm. What can you do to further technologies like alternative energy and permaculture? Are there ways that you could build a system that actually conserves electricity? I don't know. But I bet you there are people out there that do. And there's people that are working on it. The very high-end corporate patented, we want to sell it and own the world with it model. But it's the renegade. It's the renegade that can change society today or help it rebuild tomorrow with that skill set. The next one is selling and negotiating. With an emphasis on the negotiating. Selling to me is a fundamental skill, and it's something that everybody has, and some people are really talented at, and some people really shy away from, but I think even the people that shy away from it don't realize what a salesperson you are. I'll say to a person, well, you're a salesperson just like every other person on the planet. No, I'm not. Really? Why not? Well, be, I'm not a salesperson because I'm shy, I'm introverted, right? I don't like to go out and uh, engage with people that don't want to talk to me. I have a fear of rejection, and I give this laundry list. So you've done a pretty good job of convincing me that you're not a salesperson. And they go, see, I told you. I go, you just did a great job of selling me the concept that you're not a salesperson. See, we're all salespeople. It's intrinsic to who we are. But the master salesperson is the negotiator. And there's a word that I always hate to hear with negotiator. It precedes it. It's shrewd. 
shrewd negotiator, a poker player type negotiator. Doesn't reveal his hand, right? See, the problem with that is if you're engaged in that, what you're engaged in doing is, is conning rather than negotiating. If you truly negotiate with another party, the solution is always one that both parties can live with, both parties can feel good about, and both parties had to compromise on some level what they wanted at the highest level. If you take the ability to act as a diplomat in that type of an arrangement, and you add to it your natural talent of a salesperson, you become one of the most critical leaders in a rebuilding society that you could, you could ever have. And I'll tell you why. Whatever little bubble you end up in, in a rebuilding, whatever little community, I don't care if it's a small town-sized community, or, or, or 20 families up on a mountain, or even a mid-sized town, it will only be a matter of time before it becomes painfully obvious that societies cannot function as islands, and that you'll need to reach out and deal with other communities. The person that can negotiate in a way where the other community feels like they were taken care of too, and hopefully they have someone like that as well, those two people can help both of those societies strengthen and build. And they can also do something that might be one of the most critical things in the world in a time like this. They can sell their community on the fact that they can make it and the effort is worth it. Without a few people within a group that will stand up and say, look, this is going to be okay. Here is how we're going to make this work and inspire people, it becomes really a dim world very, very fast, and a world in which many people would just simply decide this is not worth it anymore, and they'll become part of that half of society that my father used to say would lay down and die. Now, the beauty of it is that that's such a natural inborn trait in people, and I would say there's about 10% of society that have that in them. It's just there. That odds are, if you, put, if you put 20 people together, one or two of them have that capability. And sometimes they're that 80-year-old lady. And sometimes they're a 16-year-old kid. Remember, I was never putting those people down. I was talking about how society functions today. I saw it in the Army all the time. I'd see a staff sergeant. Everybody would give the man respect for his rank. If he said something was to be done, it was always done. But nobody really followed him. And into that unit would walk a brand new fresh specialist or corporal, or maybe a buck sergeant, which is just a plain old sergeant, coming from another unit. And within a month... All the people in that unit would follow that corporal or that buck sergeant, even people that were senior to them in rank. I've seen it with private first class, a PFC and E3, pretty low on the totem pole, where that's the person that, hey, I know that I can follow this person because they see my best interest at heart. And that's because they know how to sell their leadership. And they know how to sell belief. And for those of you who have ever wondered what selling really is, it's only three words to define the entire concept and nothing else is ever needed. Transfer of belief. That is all selling is. You want to buy a car? 
All I have to do is transfer the belief to you that this is the best car for your situation. And here's the key about being a good salesperson. If it really is the best car for your situation, my job is very, very easy. And I can be completely honest, and I can be a great negotiator. If it's not the best car for you, if I'm a good salesman, I'm going to tell you, you don't want this. This does not fit your needs. Let's look at what you really need and find you a better solution. But most salespeople don't do that because they're not salespeople. Most salespeople don't go into sales jobs. It's crazy, I know. But most salespeople take that leadership and they end up as project managers. Some of the best salespeople I've ever seen in my life, project managers. Let's move on to another one, logistics. Yesterday I was talking about um, how when we moved uh, into Honduras for a six-month deployment, and I said along the way, the geniuses in logistics figured out. And some of you might have thought that was sarcasm. It was not. The people that run Army Logistics or Marine Corps Logistics or Air Force Logistics are geniuses. If you think about what they do, let's look back to the first Gulf War. In a matter of a couple months, we moved a half a million people from the United States and various other parts of the world to a tiny spot in the desert, equipped with enough food and water to provide all of their needs, and equipped with enough machinery and weaponry, ammunition, supplies, and fuel to fight a war with what at the time was one of the largest armies in the world, at least by body count. And then to take that and implement it and pull it off in about a hundred hours, the war itself was over. And people look at that and well, well we had them outclass, we had better soldiers, we had better weapons. There's no way they could, and you're right about all that. But without the logistical planning, I want you to think about this. You've got a hundred huge tanks that need thousands of gallons of fuel to operate over time, sitting in Texas. And you have to get them and the manpower and the, and, the, and the people that can work on them when they break and the ammunition and the fuel and people there to feed them. And you have to have supplies for the people that feed them from Texas to Saudi Arabia. And that's one thousandth of one percent of what had to be done. Logistics in the military is what makes the whole thing run. How do we plan our deployments? How do we plan our, 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 our undeployments, our redeployments. How do we handle this? For every person that goes there, there's a, a series of needs around that person. And it's just, you know what? This is the crazy thing. Logistical planning for the military is just like permaculture. Each soldier has required inputs and expected outputs. And those have to be balanced. So how does that affect you in, you know, a shit at the fan scenario? Where we're trying to rebuild society. You know, we're not talking about deploying tanks to, to Saudi Arabia. We're not even talking about getting oil from Saudi Arabia to the United States anymore, right? Those days are gone. So what is logistics all about then? Well, it's about being able to do just that. It's about being able to look at a community and understand the inputs and the outputs of everybody and where the deficiencies are and create a plan that allows for those deficiencies to be met and an acceptance of the deficiencies that we cannot take care of in the community, 
which then are passed off to the negotiator sales types to go negotiate those deficiencies with other communities. And what does that guy need, that negotiator need, to do his job? He needs a list of the surpluses. See, because anything on the list of the surpluses, anything we have in abundance, right, can be given up. But to really do his job, he needs to know of those surpluses, which are the ones that everybody's going to have in this area right now. What are the unique surpluses? If I know my unique surpluses, then I can go into a negotiation very uh, equally with my counterpart and say, look, these are the things that I have that I know you probably need. We're happy to exchange with you. These are the things we don't have that we really need. And the logistical planner is how those outputs and inputs are calculated. And it's also a lot more simple on a micro level. The logistical planner is the person that can sit down with the electrical engineer and determine priorities of where to start. Because just because you have a couple guys that can put together some electrical equipment doesn't mean that they know where and what should go first. See, these skills all interplay with each other. No one would ever have them all. That's, that's the other thing. Navigational competency, I think it's huge. And I'm talking from basic map reading to primitive navigation. Let's be honest. In some of these scenarios, a, a magnetic compass, you might as well throw it away. And in some, it's going to be completely functional. In some, some of these scenarios, a GPS, completely useless. In some, some scenarios, as long as you get some power for it, recharge some batteries, satellites are still up there, the little box still works, it still knows where everything is. Completely functional. Some of these scenarios, maps, the last place you're going to want to be is on a road. And some of the scenarios, the first place you're going to want to be is on a road, especially the more rebuilding it gets done. There are so many people in our society today that cannot navigate their, you know, they can't navigate their way to, to a grocery store and tell you the directions that they're going. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to that go visit them at their home. And, and they say, yeah, we'd like to get a bottle. I say, I'll run get a bottle of wine. Yeah, sure. Where should I go? Oh, there's a store just down the road. Okay. And, and they start trying to tell you how to get there. They're like using all kinds of, it's like a mile away and they're using like 14 landmarks. Well, there's a street sign, and you kind of make a U-turn there, but it's not really a U-turn. There's a road that goes that way. And you make a basic question like, well, when I get on this main road outside of your house here, do I go north or south? They don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You've lived here for ten years. They don't know north and south from where they live. If that is you, correct that. You cannot be that way. You need to be able to look at a map, a, a state map, a, a national map, and in your head, kind of say, I live there, and when I'm standing out my front door, I'm facing that way on the map. That's south. You have to have directional understanding. This is one everybody needs, this one. And it's so lacking. And I know some of you guys are going, come on, read the map. It's easy. It's kids. You know what? I bet you you got somebody that you, you have a lot of respect for, you think's a great person, probably even love them, probably couldn't read a map to save their life. See, and then map reading is not just the, the skill that you need, and not just basic navigation. I'm also talking about things like the ability to draw maps. Not even necessarily to, to perfect scale or, or be a true cartographer. That would be a valid skill as well going forward in a rebuilding society. But a basic map. So that if you're part of a scouting mission, instead of coming back with, it's all in my head, here's a map. 
so that if something happens and you can't go back to a resource that was found, someone else can follow it back accurately. I'm talking about things like learning to navigate using things like a sun compass. Sun compass is one of the simplest concepts in the world, and it's amazing to me how many people don't know how to do it. Take a stick. Find a sunny spot. Put it in the ground. Get about five rocks or little sticks. Put one stick right where the tip of the shadow meets the ground. Wait about ten minutes. Put down another little rock or stick where the tip of the stick meets the ground. Do that about four or five times until you have about a foot long to two foot long line made with those little sticks. That's an east-west line. If you know east and west, north and south is easy. Simple, accurate, fast. Anybody can do it. You know, I took a walk with somebody. Guys, ex-military too. Was in the Boy Scouts. We're walking up on a mountaintop. Oh, yeah, moss always grows on the north side of the tree. Really? Okay, let's go here. So you're saying that's the north side of the tree? Yeah. Let's do something. Let's walk around the, the other side of the tree. The whole tree is covered in moss 360 degrees. He goes, oh, well, you have to look for a tree that only has moss on one side of it. Okay. So we eventually find one that only has moss on one side of it. And it's the west side of the tree. So there's the sun. It's going this way, right? Those, those things don't work. There's, there's a reason that they would say that. Because the sunny side of the tree is less likely to grow moss than the, than the, the dark side of the tree. But things have shadows cast on them all the time. If you're down in a ravine, it may be, which is where we were, that none of those, none of that trunk line gets sunlight ever. So it would only be on a fully exposed slope, pointed the right direction that this would work. And if you had all that, you would know the answer before you looked for where the moss was. But if you know how to do a sun compass, you can always find that east-west line. Simple skill. Doesn't even require, mean, there's, there's no place, I would guess, other than maybe the middle of a desert. And I'm sure you'd still probably chase something up. But if you could find a stick and a few pebbles, and it's daylight, you could determine your sense of direction. A little bit of, of astrono, uh, astrological knowledge as well. Understanding the stars, the North Star. If you can find the North Star, you're in pretty good shape. If you know anything at all, about degrees of elevation, and you understand that if you're looking at a flat surface, and you sit and you stare out into the horizon, and you hold your fist at arm's length from yourself, you're looking at about 10 degrees. So you could literally drop someone off with that knowledge somewhere in the United States. They had no idea where they were. If they went, went to wait till nightfall to identify the North Star, determine how many degrees up in the sky the North Star is, they'll have a relative idea of at least north to south where they are on the planet. It didn't even have to be the United States. Whether they're at 40 degrees or 50 degrees or 30 degrees or 20 degrees latitude. See, these navigational skills are important in so many ways. And like I said, I don't think everybody should learn all these skills, but I think everybody should learn this one and a lot about it. Understanding where you are and where you're going will help you develop all your other skill sets. It'll keep you out of a lot of trouble at times as well. I think another one is primitive cooking and primitive methods of food storage. We talk about it a lot, but I think people with the end of the world scenario, they lose focus on why it's important. They see it as, well, if I have primitive cooking skills, okay, I can eat, fine. And if I have the ability to store food with primitive methods, um, like solar dehydration, or um, fermentation, 
or smoking. That lets me stockpile food in the good times so I can get through the bad times. But think about a society rebuilding itself, running largely on piece together solar and wind energy. How many refrigerators do you think you can run that way? Think you can have a great big double door refrigerator, freezer side by side in every home? As that society is rebuilding, the person that can take a little and cook with it, highly valued. I guarantee you, the neighborhood chef, highly, highly valued. And the person that can take that, that skill and kind of twist it a little bit and go, look here, community, this is how you preserve the harvest. This is how we make what we have today last till tomorrow. Tremendously advantageous. Now, both of those skills I talk a lot about on an ongoing basis. Why? They help you today, not just in the end of the world scenario. Next one I talk about tremendously, but it's permaculture design. In a society rebuilding itself after peak oil or anything else that creates a breakdown in electrical infrastructure, no matter why or what that is, you're going to have a society that needs to learn how to feed itself off the land. And we can do that through con you know, the, the concept of agriculture where it's constant input and that's relative to output. And what I mean by that is I love my little garden. Don't get me wrong and my beans and stuff. And, and all, but I have to go out there and I have to, I have to mess around with it a lot. And I, have to, and I can't go a year. There's never going to be a point in time where I can go a full year with my hands off of it. But as the society rebuilds, rebuilding on a permanence would be the only way to go. And I think people at that point would have to get over their arrogance and wake up to the reality that that's not what we do today. That everything that we do today is completely unsustainable and nothing would make that more evident than for it to no longer be sustained. And having that skill set of knowing, look, if we just put a, if we just put a ditch in here, right, and having the skill set to go, okay, we don't have all this fancy equipment for a direct level, right, if you can find a piece of tubing and some muddy water and a couple sticks, we can come up with a level line or know how to build an A-frame level and be able to go out and take that engineering skill and combine it with an agricultural skill set in a permaculture environment and say, look, if we just do this, we plant this variety of stuff, it's worth doing now because within five years we'll have an endless supply coming from this system. Here's how to rebuild that. Tremendously valuable. Of course, today, nothing goes wrong. One of the most valuable things we could have anyway. In fact, I believe, I really believe this. I don't just say this because it's an important thing to me or I really like it. I believe that permaculture is the solution to not end up in these end-of-the-world scenarios in a lot of instances. It won't stop a pandemic, but it can avert peak oil. And it's also something, if we get it in place today instead of waiting until we have to, Something that when we do have the, the disasters that it cannot prevent, it can certainly mitigate. Permaculture, I want you to understand, folks, is about more than food production. It's about a complete whole way of living, and it takes into account a lot of things on the energy level, interworking with that electrical engineer we talked about in the beginning. It under, it's about understanding, even when you're building a structure for humans to live inside of, how do the energy flows around the property? Where do the cold winds come from in the winter? Where do the warm winds come from in the summer? Are those desirable or undesirable? Do we want to bring them in or keep them out or redirect them? 
What is the solar exposure this time of year versus that time of year? When is the solar exposure advantageous? When is it negative? This is permaculture design. I think it's one of the key critical elements to, to helping society survive in the future. That's why I talk about it so much. Next one, the ability to teach. And when you look at today's show notes, you'll see after that, without a state-provided lesson plan. I don't want to put anybody down. There's a place for teaching kids in the second grade their times tables and their division tables until they can do basic mathematics up from 1 through 12 in their head. It's hugely important. But it's not the type of teaching I'm talking about today. The type of teaching I'm talking about today is the person that doesn't know jack diddly crap about permaculture, but can go to the permaculture designer and say, how does this one component work and how many of them do we need? Master that skill set. Maybe not yet understand the total scope of it, but can grab 20 or 30 people and go, you guys here, here, do in this, this is how you do it, that's wrong, look, it's like that, and get people doing stuff. And get people contributing. See, the teacher is the skill multiplier. Most people that are true masters of their skills have very little patience for students that don't learn quickly. I am that person. That's why a few of you have emailed me and go, can you help me build a website? No, because you'll drive me crazy and I'll want to kill you by the time it's over with. You want to send me something, ask for a critique, I'll do it. That's it. Because I don't have the patience to help somebody with something I've already mastered. I'm not a great teacher in that capacity. I can teach like this on this show. And I can teach, I can teach the, the, the student that learns quickly. But I don't have the patience to deal with a group of ten people who have no idea where I'm starting at. The people that have that have a very gifted skill. Because if they're the quick student, they can come to the person that knows how to shoot well. They can come to the person that knows how to build a trap well. They can come to the person that knows how to cook well. They can come to the person that knows how to install wiring for a solar system. They can come to the person that knows anything. And they might not understand the totality, but they can understand the critical skill sets that are necessary for the labor-intensive portion of the, of, the, of the thing. And they can transfer that knowledge to people that generally would not have an interest except they're in a situation where they don't have a choice. And they have a special patience. And even though I started out with saying I'm not talking about the second grade teacher that teaches times and division tables, that person has it. My question for that person is, if we take you out of that environment, put you in a stress situation where you're tired, hungry, and dirty, living in fear, in a small band, trying to regrow a society, can you transcend that skill to a group of adults and teaching them a skill that you didn't know yourself yesterday? If you can, massive, massive skill. And there's varying degrees of teaching. I can teach big concepts to big groups. I can teach micro-concepts to the highly advanced student. That's my limits. There's teachers that can spend the time and have the patience to help anybody learn. Those will be the most valuable teachers 
as we go into what I would call a rebuilding society. And I really think it's a skill that everybody should learn somewhat. And I'll acknowledge my teaching limitations, but I can teach as well. And you teach best what you most need to learn. Maybe that's why I struggle with patience. Maybe I need to learn to teach patience, uh, because maybe that's what I most need to learn. But we all have our limitations, and part of functioning well in a society is to know your limitations and to know your strengths and to work your strengths for the betterment of the community that you're part of. The next one, I'm going to kind of throw a bunch of things in here. Tool making, welding, and machinist schools. Like, Jack, we're talking about the end of the world as you know it. What are you going to do with a welder? You don't have any energy. Well, you have some. Eventually, this is a skill that's being lost. As more and more of our manufacturing is being outsourced to China and around the world, the Philippines has taken a lot of that business now. People don't even know about that. The Philippines are starting up so much of our manufacturing and our, our assembly business. The machinist is extremely valuable. The machinist can create tools. I want you to think about this. One of the, the main skills that separates not just human beings but primates from the rest of the animal community is simply the ability to make and use tools, even at the most basal level. Let's look at like... Uh, you know, chimpanzees or apes or baboons that are being threatened by a leopard that will go up into a tree and pick up rocks or sticks and throw them at the animal. The inanimate object has now become a tool. And it's made primates the most successful member of the animal kingdom other than human beings. Because they're the only other thing out there that can see something for more than it is presently. Pick it up and use it. They come to a termite mound where, you know, an anteater will just start tearing it apart and do a rudimentary job with it. An ape that wants the termites will pick up a stick, shove it in the hole, and when the termites grab the stick, eat them off. Simplistic. Not advanced enough for us, but I think it makes my point on how important tool making is. Well, the machinist and the tool maker can see a problem... And, and, and someone else can look at it and go, boy, if we only had something that did this, that guy can make it. He can create it. And it may not always be with a high-powered metal lathe. He may be able, because he has that skill set, he may be able to adapt and overcome a situation of deficiency and say, actually, I can build that out of wood. Or I only need a piece of that to be metal. And it might take a lot longer in a situation they're in, but that one tool might be critical to the survival of the people as a whole. Or at least their comfort and their hope that rebuilding is possible. The same with the welding skill set. Now, there might not be tons of opportunity to weld, but look, heat, metal, melt, bond. That's what it really comes down to. And sooner or later, a way to produce that heat again will be found, even if it's just from, maybe it's a very limited amount of, of fuel, and it's only done for very specific needs. But it sure is hell a valuable skill set. Welding is one of the greatest inventions of mankind. It's enabled us to do so many things. Without it, our modern society doesn't look like it does today. So all of those, machinists, tool making, welding, put them in one, one kind of hat. I know they're really broken up, but I don't want the show to go too long today. But I think those skills are critical today. If you can weld, there's a lot of things you can do from a self-sufficiency standpoint. 
I mean, if you can weld, you can build your own tower for a windmill. Right? If you can make tools, you can see problems and create the very solution to the problem. I think that would be a highly valued capability, again, in a society rebuilding itself after collapse. The last one is carpentry and woodworking skills. Simply because we ain't going to be doing a lot of welding and machinist work anytime soon. And the most ancient building material known to man is really wood. Now, many people would claim it was stone. And I guess maybe on some levels it could be. And maybe we should add stonework and stone masonry to, uh, to the list today as a bonus item. But I never saw a ship made out of rock. A boat made out of rocks. They sink. You have to think that as man explored this world, when much of it was still unseen and uncharted, and went across vast seas so far that you know they would have fear that they would fall off the edge of the planet at one time, they did it on ships made of wood. And it was carpenters that built those ships. And if carpentry could take man from Europe to North America, then carpentry can help rebuild a society. It is one of the easiest skills to learn. There are so many opportunities for you to learn it for free. There's opportunities for you to learn it with a part-time job with a little bit of income. Find out about you know what kind of projects Habitat Humanity has for in your area. Go volunteer. You'll learn framing. You'll learn roofing. You'll learn everything. You'll learn drywall, sheetrock. Go find someone that, that is running a construction company. Say, I just want to learn. I'll work for free one day a week. Work Saturdays when you have work on Saturdays. I just want to be an apprentice for free. You'll probably end up with a part-time job if you're any good. You might not even want it. You might only want to do it for a few weeks just to get a basic fundamental understanding. But it's another one of those skills. I think everybody should have some basic carpentry skills. Do you know how many people can't cut a 2 by 4 and a half with a cross-cut saw? It's one of the easiest and most difficult skills there is to master in the world. Push too hard, doesn't work. Move the saw too slow, doesn't work. Let the weight of the saw do the work, move it at the right speed, the right tempo. You can cut a 2 by 4 and a half with a good cross-cut saw in a couple seconds, literally. Maybe 15 seconds. You don't even break a sweat. But put somebody there and ask them to make that cut that's not familiar with it. And it seems almost impossible. You almost don't believe it when you see somebody else do it. I remember when I was like nine years old, and I used to build all kinds of stuff with scrap wood that we'd pick up. I lived in this area where they were building new houses, and you could go around and ask the guys, and they'd let you take all the wood they'd throw in a certain pile. We had all the scrap wood, and we'd build ramps for our bikes and stuff like that. And I remember sitting and suffering through just making one cut through a two-by-four, because I didn't have the dexterity and the coordination and the knowledge. And getting ready to cut the next one, and my dad coming home from work and going, give me that. You know, and he did what he could to show me and to teach me, but the reality was you had to learn from experience. And once you learned it, it was like a bicycle. You'd never forget again. It's exactly what a lot of woodworking skills are like. Learning the feel of the wood. Running a plane, a jack plane. There, there's, there's a certain feel, a chisel. Cutting out certain joints with a chisel. You'll, you'll, you'll ruin a hundred pieces of wood. You'll get it right. You'll learn the feel. And instead of needing a hundred pieces to get one right, you'll mess up one out of a hundred for the rest of your life once you learn the feel of that wood. 
And you'll learn that certain wood is good for certain things and certain wood is not. And it's one thing to sit in a great big shop with a bunch of 2x4s and 2x8s and plywood. Can you do carpentry with trees? We may end up there for a while. We need to think about that. Or can you learn the skills of reclaiming lumber? You know, when we, put, we, we take down a house today, we generally bring in a big machine and smash it to the ground. There might be an awful lot of stuff out there that's just waiting to be reclaimed in a bad enough scenario. But today, that's a valuable skill. Being able to go into places that are going to be demolished anyway and get there first and take a lot of the material and recycle it so that we don't have to go cut down forests full of trees when the wood's already right there and still good. Carpentry is an extremely valuable skill. Again, I believe that carpentry is one of the skills that made modern society possible. Think about it. How many of you live in a house when it's not constructed mostly, mostly of wood and nails and was erected through human labor? Now, they might today use, you know, special levels, and they might use nail guns and power saws, and the houses aren't quite what they used to be. You go look at a house that was built in 1850, and taking that thing down is almost impossible, and the oak frame that it's made out of, you can barely get a nail into it today. It turns almost to stone. And a house built today, 150 years from today, is not going to be standing the way that, that that old house is. And that one from 1850 might still be there, at least a frame of it. The whole thing will fall down around it. That, that oak frame will still be there. So the skill today is different than the skill in 1850. In some ways, it's more efficient, and in some ways, it's less valid because we rely on technology more than knowledge. But the skill itself is still fundamentally the same. And a house or a functional implement is still built the same way. There's only so many ways to join two pieces of wood together. There's only so many ways that a piece of wood can be used. And there's only so many ways you can stress the grain of a piece of wood without fracturing it. And there's only so many ways each classification of softwood and hardwood can be used. Having that knowledge and that skill absolutely essential. And now we look at self-sufficiency in day-to-day. Instead of spending $2,000, 3000 4000 or $5,000 for some of the bigger sheds that I've seen, they can be built for a fraction of the cost. Instead of paying a contractor to come in and build a greenhouse for you, you can build it yourself. Even basic fundamental um, carpentry skills of building raised beds. I know for some that you're like, come on, anybody can nail four pieces of wood together. No, not anybody can. Or, you know what's going to happen. If you think about it, it seems like, oh, I can just do that. And you probably would. But if you start thinking about what you would do to build a four-foot-by-four-foot raised bed, there's certain things that you would do. And it would change depending on the type of wood you're using and what you had to put it together with. Do you have wood screws? Do you have nails? Is it pine? Is it oak? Is it cedar? Is it two inches thick or is it four inches thick? Is the ground level or sloped? Right? All of a sudden, the simple box kind of changes a little bit for you. Well, get out and do it. You'd be surprised at how much you can learn how fast. And I'm telling you guys, the reason I did this show today to back up is every once in a while, even though I say plan for the mundane disasters, losing your job, a weather event, right, death of a family member, because they're the most likely ones to happen, the society breakdown, the complete breakdown is possible. I have no idea what his probability is. 
But even if it's one of one in one thousand, doesn't it make sense to at least pay some mind to it? Because it might be the most important decision that you ever make. And I tell you what, there's not a skill set that I talked about today that wouldn't benefit you to learn today. Now, again, do I think you should learn all ten of them? No, I think it's probably impractical. Maybe learning a little bit about all ten of them might not be a bad idea. Just a tiny bit here and a tiny bit there. And finding the three or four that you really can learn a lot and one or two that you can really master. And if the skill that you have or you love is not on this list, don't think that I'm putting you down. Figure out how that skill would apply to a society rebuilding itself. And figure out how that skill applies today to self-sufficiency. But realize there's certain skills that I didn't talk about. I'm a really good marketer. I really am. I'm pretty daggone good. Uh, not just the results of this show, but the results that I've gotten for clients and, and employers over the years. I'm a really good marketer. Marketing's not going to be real important, though. It's just not. Not in the early stages. Eventually, I guess, as society rebuilds itself, there's a certain level of just marketing a community to help it grow and to advertise what it has available so that you can barter better. But short term, especially the marketing skills I have, and the marketing skills some of the really brilliant people I've worked with over the years, the marketing analyst has, that's not going to help us. It's just not. The person that holds down a desk every day doesn't really do it. If you didn't show up for work for two weeks, if nothing would fall apart, Whatever skill you have in that job, I'm not saying you don't have a skill that's valuable, but whatever skill you're exercising there is probably not sufficient to provide you a place in a society that's rebuilding. I suggest you have one. Because whether you like it or not, the society is going to change. That's what I want to finish with today. We don't need the end of the world as we know it for this type of society to exist. I believe that mankind as a whole is starting to look at the world and realize we can't continue this way. And that's why there is big movement in permaculture. That's why there's big movement in the green movement, even though a lot of it's misdirected. But I think it's only a matter of time before some large portion of society wakes up and gets it right and understands we don't need to trample on the rights of others, but we do need to start understanding that just like lab rats, if we put enough of us into one situation, we'll start to kill each other, and sooner or later we'll just start to die off. planet will fix its own problem, folks. There will never be 50 billion people on planet Earth. I'm telling you that right now. I don't care what the long-term projections are. It's not going to happen. And it's not going to be whether or not a government does it or whatever. Nature will fix the problem if we go to that extreme. And sooner or later, human beings are going to decide to fix the problem and change the structures of society. Now, we might do it before a cataclysm. And if we do, then we get to bring all the modern technology with us. So that's a much better way to do it. But it's still going to come down to people with fundamental production-level skill sets are going to be the people that have the biggest impact on society. And a lot of security comes with that as well. And even if we never live to see the change, and if we never live to see the cataclysm, then we still have to be as self-sufficient as we can be. And the types of things I talked about today, and I could probably make a list of a hundred of them, are important to your self-sufficiency and independence. 
And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for everybody who listens to this show. I want you self-sufficient and independent. As much of it as you want. And however much you want, I want you to have the capability to expand it if that's ever necessary. You have that, and you have everything. Because you'll know that you can take care of yourself, and you'll never put yourself into compromising positions out of fear. That's really what it's all about, is the banishment of fear. With that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'd like you to consider some of the things that I've said today. And if you have ideas for additional skills, and please, let, let's not put fire making, how to shoot, military def- underrated survival skills. How to purify water. Yeah, I know. I know, but that's always talked about. What are the ones that people don't generally talk about? What are they? Think. Help me out. Maybe we can do a follow-up show with 10 more skills. And with that, I am going to sign off today. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Time to get Jeff, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler. It really doesn't matter, because it all gets spent.